guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Kerry King. We've talked to him a couple of times before. Uh, he is a researcher at University of Texas, I believe. Is that right? Yes, University of Texas at Austin. Yep. At Austin. Austin is the great city of Texas. And uh, we've talked a couple of times about him building an economic model to help model the transition to renewables and away from fossil fuels. And with all that's been happening in terms of fossil fuels lately, I thought it would be a good time to ambush him and catch up and get his two cents on what's going on. So Kerry, thanks for consenting to be my victim today. Um, uh, thanks for having me again, Jim. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You didn't actually start out studying economics, which is, I think, a unique perspective given the world that we live in. All right. Um, grounded educational wise is in mechanical engineering. So a bachelor's and PhD in mechanical engineering. And for the last um, well, since 2007, I started working again at University of Texas after graduating and previously working at a company unrelated to energy systems, but flat panel displays. Uh, but then I yeah, started doing more types of energy system analysis to choose and food how the food system integrates with energy. And um, over the last, you know, eight or so years, I've spent more time focusing on the macro scale picture of energy, macroeconomic modeling, how do people do macroeconomic modeling, how do we track flows of money and track flows of energy, and uh, yeah, five years have, have been, in some sense, you know, it's more, more slowly than I would like, developing uh, my own macroeconomic model to uh, do, as you say, uh, eventually, uh, have the capability to inform uh, the, the transition to a low carbon economy in terms of integrating physical flows of mass and energy together with flows of money in the sort of modern sense of tracking money flowing around the economy within banks and uh, as debt and credit and these kinds of things. So that's where I am. I have my, my latest papers in press and uh, archive version out on the web right now. And uh, it's, it's not all the way, it, it doesn't you know, inform the low carbon transition, but it does inform uh, the way that this model uh, should, be, should be able to inform the low carbon transition more in the sense that of how it couples the dynamics of energy and resource flows together with the dynamics of money flows. And it sort of has some interesting patterns that it matches within the US and global economies relating say energy and GDP or energy and capital. So I think it has some nice insights there and it's along the way, but uh, the current version that I'm working on is uh, integrating uh, renewables and other sectors into that model. So is that new paper accessible to the public now or is that uh, able to yeah, be read? Yeah. yeah, there's an archive version like AR, you know, the letter CHI, but it looks archive, AR Chi IV, and so that's a repository that um, has sort of preprint articles that a lot of people put up there in science and economics. Okay. So it's called, uh, yeah, it's, the title is Interdependence of Growth, Structure, Size, and Resource Consumption During an Economic Growth Cycle. So it's going to come out in Biophysical Economics and Sustainability Journal um, 
Uh, well, it's in press, so I don't know, weeks or, or maybe a month. Okay. Well, what I'll That's do is there. I'll I'll try to put a link to the uh, article uh, that you well that's online uh, for people to take a read. I and the link, yeah, site to it. Yeah, send that. Yeah, the Carrie King Publications link on my website uh, will have uh, a link to it. So you also wrote a book uh, in the past couple of years called the Economic Superorganism, which helps to kind of explain this model and. Um, how has uh, that gone for you in terms of spreading this idea of trying to build the model? Right, yeah, the book's a bit, yeah, more broad than the model. I probably talk about the model for two or three pages because it yeah, one paper out on it at the time. But uh, the book is really, yeah, largely, uh, you know, 460 pages of sort of explaining why <laughs> you, I think we need these types of kind of new modeling methods. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's yeah, I think uh, I think it definitely has helped. Uh, you know, it's people find the book more easily than they find journal papers and these kinds of things. So more people have reached out and asked me about it. I was in the the book's been out for about a year, I guess, at, at this point. And uh, yeah, I was a part of the Texas Book Festival this year and had a panel a speaking panel on that. So that was nice. And you know, people are asking. You know, after the the freeze in Texas here, and then the near complete blackout of the grid, but the kind of severe blackouts that occurred, you know, just as the financial crisis 2008 made people rethink models of the economy, now now people are rethinking models of electricity markets and how those are structured and what the rules are. Exactly. And so, uh, so now we have what's going on in terms of now energy prices spiking again with what's going on in Europe. And obviously that's actually reverberating around the world, um, affecting prices of gas here as well, obviously. Um, so I guess the question is when we look at transitioning, and I think this is kind of a key insight for me in terms of thinking about this, um, when we're looking at transitioning from renewables to renewables from fossil fuels, is this kind of instability going to be more of the norm or is this kind of a, a special case situation? Like, is this kind of something that we have to just learn to live with and adapt to? Or are there things that we can do better to kind of ease the transition? Uh, right, so yeah, I'd say kind of, Ultimate question. Um, I, I'll answer quickly and then caveat it. My my general, yes. I, these these are kind of things I might anticipate or expect to happen, which is to say they're neither some in a grand sense neither good nor bad. Just like maybe you'd expect this kind of dynamics. Now, with that said, um, I, I certainly you know listening to people talk about these things as well and how much of this is related to just. COVID effects and, you know, manufacturing shutdowns uh, outside of Europe and um, the United States affecting delivery of various goods that then increase prices, maybe not, but at least uh, other prices of other kinds of goods, including food. But the, uh, the energy situation, as far as red things, seems to be changes and or fewer exports of coal from Australia to 
Uh, so that's an energy thing to, to China. Mm-hmm. Um, and China, you know, shutting down some factories or slowing down, whether it's really as some climate sort of tactic or the just coal shortage. And then, yeah, the gas, a little bit of gas supply, gas supply shortage in uh, Europe, which I think is also driven by the sort of ceasing of a lot of gas extraction in, in the Netherlands. Um, you know, Europe's, you know, the big, you know, big demand and not a lot of extraction of oil and gas or coal for that matter. Uh, decent, maybe a decent amount of coal in the, in the central and eastern parts. Um, but yeah, if, you know, the, we've passed the time, you know, I guess before the 1970s, you know, the United States, I mean, there basically wasn't an oil shock maybe anywhere. There wasn't a global oil market. Now we had, then we had a global oil market in the 1980s in the sense that, you know, traders around the world could trade oil. So now the price of oil in one place of the world could certainly financially affect the, the price of oil somewhere else. And tankers could change direction and go one place or another. Now you've got that with natural gas. So now you have what's getting closer to a global natural gas market, which means this in some sense, the same thing that the price of natural gas in one part of the world will now affect the price of natural gas in another part of the world much more than it used to. I mean, the more you can have global trade on something, that's essentially what it means. The more the price uh, prices can attempt to equilibrate across regions as much as they can, but because gas isn't, still transmitted a lot via pipeline local and local uh the continents and the local regions it's still you know not as tightly the gas price is not as tightly uh there's a much larger spread in gas prices to say uh than there is oil prices so yeah but it's still affecting the prices here in the u.s right price as you're pointing out in europe you know even they're 20 or 25 dollars a million btu if are a big part of the reason why the prices are trying to get to five and six here in the u.s when they otherwise wouldn't have so, you know, one of the complaints that I've heard in terms of, you know, especially in terms of uh, looking at CEOs or talking heads on Bloomberg is we have to drill more, drill baby drill. And we, you know, this is kind of a end result of our not investing in terms of more drilling, which, you know, if you're looking at the climate situation, you know, we shouldn't be drilling more. And yet you have these situations which then have the other side calling for more drilling. Um, How do we navigate that bifurcation of need and demand? I mean, that seems to be a real challenge going forward if this is gonna be quote unquote typical. Yeah, that's a good, question uh you know i don't know if my answers are much more insightful than others but to some degree you know you'd like to think okay is there a way for people to think that let's just say within a country or the eu for example or the united states is there a chance for everybody to say hey uh, you know if i were the president what would i say is kind of maybe what you're asking or at least i'll i'll try to imagine that say hey look you know the future is uncertain uh we've got competing goals uh, or I have competing goals, uh, which is I want to be a partner in addressing global climate change. And I also want people to have a nice lifestyle uh, within the United States. And these are competing for reasons because one's a very long-term, is looking for a long-term outcome that we want. And the other one is a little bit more focused on short-term outcomes. And 
if you're focused on different time periods and to address these might end a conflict. So I'm not avoiding the conflict. I'm trying to confront the conflict head on and, and deal with it. And, you know, more oil and gas drilling is the short-term uh, effect of let's just extract more out of the ground now uh, so that we can get through this whatever short-term, what seems to be a short-term issue, but I don't anticipate that short-term uh, incentive to ever go away, right? This yeah. is kind of the nature of being alive. And, you know, the book, my book kind of, in some sense, uh, you know, tackles this issue of, you know, it's sort of an evolutionary challenge in, in biology, even, and then translate this to ideas within the economy of, you know, if you don't survive now, then you're not going to procreate and have uh, a process. So, you know, if a country doesn't sort of, quote unquote, survive now, well, then it's not going to survive in the future. And so there's always that challenge. And that's kind of my interpretation why nothing tends to get done majorly on the front for countries, right? Every country, every leader of every major country, for the most part, uh, we can, I guess we can debate Russia and China now. But, you know, even though they've, they've signed the, the Paris Accord, China will make a statement, yeah, we're gonna try to reach this goal, yet nobody's collectively, it's obviously not getting reached. Uh -huh. It's this, you know, the same, so they say they want the long-term goal, but don't have short-term uh, in a way that's required to get there. And really maybe there's this sort of evolutionary push, which maybe they don't feel like you know, you're fully in charge of. Even the president of the United States may not feel like it's fully in charge of, not in charge of doing everything, changing everything in the economy, but can be essentially the most influential person for that. And so you get these, you know, Biden, President Biden, for example, and, you know, the oil and gas leasing, and people are saying that's contradictory. Well, yeah, it probably is, for the most part, uh, potentially contradictory to the goals. Maybe you can use some of those offshore, you know, mineral access to extract oil and gas. Maybe you can use some of it to inject CO2. So it's not maybe necessarily a one-way street in terms of climate, but, <clears throat> It's, you know, he, you know, he calls on, you know, Saudi Arabia to pump more oil and gas. And yes, that is sort of contradictory uh, when you know that higher prices will shift people to, to consume less and, and or find alternatives or shift to the alternatives faster. And, you know, we have more alternatives for at least vehicle transportation now than we used to in terms of electric vehicles becoming much, much more accessible. So it seems, you know, they're still expensive. Perhaps, I mean, cars in general may be expensive for people, but I don't know. I, I think there's just this short-term and long-term conundrum, and I, I don't hear, see enough people at, you know, high levels just trying to state that they understand that and that they're trying to deal with it, and they may, you know, have, you know, it's it's difficult. But if I heard them say that, it would it would make me feel better that I, I feel like they actually recognize the, the conundrum between long-term and short-term desires. Yeah. Yeah, that there can be a conflict. I think that's step one. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of your particular model, and it seems like what's what's got us trapped in this is this idea that we have to continue consuming energy at the current rate. Like we have to keep going and consuming at the rate that we currently are in order to be quote unquote, economically successful and growth oriented. 
I mean, ultimately in the long term, it would seem with more renewables, ultimately the cost of the economic system that go the cost in terms of energy would be less and the overall system would be stronger. The challenge is getting there. But I mean, is is the solution really to get to a point of accepting less growth and giving up the use of the fossil fuels um, in the near term, like immediately? Well, I guess I would say, I think the challenge, it's not obvious to me that, you know, the renewable future will be, you know, cheaper in terms of cost, either dollar mm. per unit or dollar per GDP or percentage of GDP spending. It's not <clears throat> obvious to me that it will be less, but what I think is that if you're, you know, in terms of my book, right, there's these the energy and economic narratives and the, the energy narratives are fossil on one side and renewables on the other. Mm -hmm. I think the conundrum is what you are or, or sort of asking me is that neither one of them are necessarily, neither one of the energy narratives are clearly a route to a continuously growing economy that we might've thought of 30 yeah. or 40 or 50 years ago. Actually, uh, we've just sort of passed, passed that time and we're mm -hmm. such size on the planet that it's just harder to grow. I think that's just what's happening in terms of general feedbacks. So I don't think, you know, more fossils isn't gonna take, it out, take us out of it and renewables trying to one-to-one uh, -to -one replace fossils, I don't think is gonna take us out of that either. It's, mm. you know, each they have, you know, we got the depletion of the fossil resources as well as the climate, uh, you know, coming together, but the depletion affects us a little bit more in the short term. Um, and yeah, so the model, you know, my, my, my research program is to try to understand this, uh, this sort of dynamic as you're, that you're asking is, well, here's the rate, assuming progress some rate of transition to renewables, how does an infect thing, how does this affect the economy? And I would expect it to um, put downward pressure on growth and potentially put the economy into recession if, if you transition fast enough. And that's just because you're allocating so many resources to the effort within the energy sector broadly, it's not that it's renewables, it's just that you're influencing so much energy uh, materials and manpower into the energy sector that over the course of a decade or two or three, I don't know, um, it, the, the energy sector would grow in proportion to the rest of the size of the economy and, uh, and it might grow so large in that proportion that it sucks away too many other ec economic activ activities and, mm. and you sort of technically have a recession based upon the contraction of the other parts mm -hmm. of the economy. I don't consider that bad or good. I just consider that what I think is gonna happen and I'm trying to demonstrate yeah. that uh, it, it's, I don't know, as systematically as I can. Mm. Um, and again, yeah, the reason why I focus on this is because I think most of the economic models that are out there informing this question simply are incapable of informing the question, yet people yeah. think they are, right? And so that's why I, I do this. We, I just had a good panel, uh, a plenary panel for the United States Association for Energy Economics. It's behind a paywall, the recording, but uh, anybody that's a member can watch it. But it was with uh, John Wyant, who's at Stanford University. He's the, has led the Energy Modeling Forum for, for decades and been a part of that. So where they run different energy, you know, modeling scenarios to try to, you know, and inform the IPCC and all kinds of other reports. Um, 
David Daniels, who used to be the chief energy modeler at the Energy Information Administration. So he's seen lots of different ways people are trying to model things. And he was, you know, in part trying to poke holes in all of them. Mm. And another guy, Paul Brockway from the University of Leeds, who's done a lot of work on energy rebound effect and uh, backfire and how efficiency uh, plays out in the economy. And uh, so, yeah, we had a good discussion and we sort of, I think we kind of all agreed, yeah, the current models don't treat concepts like efficiency very well and, and this feedback. And so, you know, you read IEA reports or kind of mainstream reports and they'll say, yeah, we're going to achieve 30% of greenhouse gas reductions through efficiency changes. Yeah. Well, kind of depends on which efficiency change, but for the most part, efficiency is translated to more growth, uh, not less. And if you get more growth, then you're not going to get the less emissions uh, that you're hoping for from, mm -hmm. from efficiency. Mm -hmm. So I think we all kind of agreed on that. We're, <laughs> you know, you know, some of us are working on it a little, little bit more directly than others, uh, but mm. getting there. Good. What um, one of the things that I thought was interesting in the UK situation with their uh, their climate with their uh, energy crisis was one of the one of the disruptors. It's kind of a perfect storm of different factors, but one of the things was a unpredicted slow down in the wind in the North Sea that kind of disrupted their electrical supplies. Um, did you, do you happen to have any information on that or do you have any insight into that? Or I kind of have a, an opinion about it, but I would be curious about what your take on it yeah. was. Yeah, I think I don't have any particular insight and I, I know just Kind of what you said, Perfect. and I've yeah. heard these stories, and I think I found one article that showed some data, but no, I haven't looked into particular data or anything. But the only insight, or I don't know, it's not really an insight, but you know, I think most people modeling the electric grid and more renewables, you know, might think about, yeah, I have a potentially a, a week-long lull in wind or particularly cloudy days or something like this, uh, which is different than something that seems to have happened here, which is there's a there's sort of a season or a month <laughs> or a longer where it's a little bit lower than than predicted. Um, so that's kind of a yeah. I guess I hadn't really previously thought well, about. It seems that. like so yeah. It seems like that they didn't kind of incorporate this when they were placing the 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 mill the windmills and so forth. And you know I I'm a I love wind and I'm a great supporter of wind power. But it seems to me what's kind of been at work here and I could be wrong, but um, my observation is when you have higher temperatures in the Arctic, um, the temperature gradient between the North Sea and the Arctic is less, you're going to have less wind. I mean, I think that's kind of a rational assumption to make. And the reality is we have near record temperatures in the Arctic over the past couple of years. Um, I mean, these are kind of unplanned for results of how the climate is changing, you know? I mean, how do, there's really, in this way, I guess you could plan for it if you could plan for, you know, a higher temperature in the Arctic, you would think that, but I mean, what are your thoughts? Am I, yeah, completely, I, am I completely yeah. off my rocker in terms of that line of thinking? Uh, well, I guess I'd say I don't know, uh, given it's, it's sort of a climate modeling question. Um, the only thing that 
I'm, I'm aware of that seems to be what climate modelers sort of predict or expect. Uh, it's maybe related to the same thing you're saying, which is a, a somewhat less strong jet stream or one that uh, is able to change its uh, position um, in a more wide range across the, I guess, the mid-latitudes. So fluctuate north and south a lot more, um, which is potentially related to the, the cold spell and that happened in February across the much of the United States down into Texas. And that's somewhere related to a, a weaker jet stream kind of concept, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, polar vortex. So I'm not sure how that's related to this wind thing. Uh, maybe it's kind of the same type of phenomenon, but I, I would speak out of ignorance. Yeah. Well, the challenge is, uh, again, incorporating the Texas example is we need to, if that, those kinds of fluctuations are going to be, quote unquote, more normal, the range of, um, what would you say, the risk management for different um, systems needs to be more has to have a wider range to try to address that variability. You know, the problem in Texas, to my understanding, was that it wasn't cold proofed because it never gets cold enough in Texas to be that cold, you know? And so you didn't have to invest the money to kind of uh, deal with that kind of cold because it would have been a waste of money uh, in the past, but now, we're in a situation where if that's going to be a norm, then we have to invest more in terms of the risk management asset aspect of those types of assets. Yeah, much the, the combination of the, uh, the winter storm in, in Texas, at least, yeah, cold certainly and wet, and this combination of cold and wet enough uh, caused more havoc than just cold uh, or certainly just wet. Um, I don't know how, yeah, I don't know how to assess whether something like that's going to occur more or not. The, the sort of FERC and NERC report on the whole URI event has just come out uh, this week, um, and I haven't really had a chance to, to read that over too much, but I think they highlight five different time periods that had similar periods of cold across a large part of the country, maybe Texas, and we highlighted three of these in the report that we did. Um, it looks like this one kind of, you know, in terms of the duration and the duration of being sub-freezing was maybe worse than, than the other, the other four, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you could, you know, convince regulators. I mean, they were fairly, at least Texas, fairly convinced to take some action this time and they did take some actions yet. I can sort of, at least, uh, as the engineering side of me. Uh, I can I can sort of appreciate the escalating costs to protect against everything. There's certainly more protection that can be done, and that's I think roughly going to happen in the electric side of assets, electricity side of assets. But I think nobody feels like this is going to happen on the natural gas side of assets. And there's not really a doesn't seem to be a willingness to do that in Texas. And I can sort of understand that as well. Uh, I mean, like, I understand the motivation not to from the cost perspective that this is going to happen once every 10 years, then doesn't seem worth it. Maybe if it's once every five years, it maybe still doesn't seem worth it to a gas operator. But that's, you know, that perspective is different than, you know, the welfare of citizens. That's a, 
That's mm -hmm. why we have the government is to think about the other side of the equation besides the just assets of the owners and their returns are the owners of the assets. Uh, but I think my biggest disappointment is that, you know, whatever happens in terms of physical infrastructure being temporarily going out in a freeze, and then there's some human impact, uh, people getting sick and obviously some, some people dying. Yeah, we can try to protect that. And it's, maybe it's hard to protect everybody given the state of some people's health and the state of their houses. That's a long-term proposition in terms of improving, you know, whatever livability of houses and this kind of thing. But what seems easier to fix is don't let it be such a large financial fallout. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, or at least yeah. it, it, maybe easy, maybe the wrong word, but you know, there's just no reason why we should in an emergency where a lot of infrastructure is broken and people are dying that you should be able to charge a thousand more times for natural gas than you did two days before. Mm -hmm. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't actually, it doesn't actually extract more gas out of the ground or through a processing unit or deliver through a pipeline, right? The market is no oh, longer functioning at that point. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're selling at $5, million, $5 a million BTU one day and then it can be a hundred the next day, well, 100 is plenty motivating. You don't have to go to 1,000 or $800 a million BTU. Um, even $50 a million BTU is probably plenty, plenty motivating. So that's what some of us are wondering about is, you know, what's the takeaway to the, you know, the gas operators say, hey, the takeaway is maybe, you know, don't protect everything. Hey, if you protect everything, there'll be, maybe there'll be enough gas flowing and uh, the prices won't go up. And it's not just a Texas problem, right? It's a yeah. gas flows in the pipeline. So it's kind of a, a national problem, but it seems like one I would would have thought our Texas legislators or somebody else in the Midwest would have sort of brought up and tried to address this mm -hmm. this issue. Yeah, I mean, these these seem to be issues of because this is going to impact consumers in the long run, right? I mean, because these costs right. end up getting passed on, and ultimately, you know, they're the ones left to really try to you know, pay for what these yeah, decisions so you, are. Right. So you got bankruptcies and, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the estimates are that everybody in Texas is going to have $5 more on their gas bill. Yeah. Because yeah. you have to pay off these, this money that uh, isn't, isn't getting paid off this money that just kind of, in some sense, fictitionally got generated during an emergency. So, mm -hmm. you know, the whole spiel of natural gas, clean, affordable, reliable natural gas are like, well, it's became $60 a, a year less affordable yeah. because it wasn't, you know, even if it was fully operating, maybe there still would have been shortages and the prices would have gone up. But, you know, if it's an emergency, it's an emergency. You just shouldn't be using, mm. you know, whatever trading pricing, you should, you should have some other kind of mechanism to, to limit it. So in terms of um, we're at the, uh, we have uh, the administration working on Build Back Better and kind of programs around trying to uh, create a more sustainable economy. Um, what would you want to see if, if you were given kind of free reign to, to include one thing? Like, what would you want to see in terms of building a more resilient economy based on your your knowledge of kind of the model that you've just you've developed um, around energy and what it means for 
kind of uh, societal stability? All uh, right, it's a good question. I guess my first statement would be my model probably doesn't inform that question uh, very much at the moment. So uh, the one question it might inform is sort of the trade-off of wage distribution and profits. I would expect there to be continued tension here. So I think in Build Back Better, I would, I would try to focus on some level of getting you know, in, income inequality. Interesting. Uh, more, you know, whatever, you know, higher income equality. Uh, I don't exactly know how high it could go if we could get back to what it was in, you know, 60s. But uh, to some degree, I would try to focus the investments that seem the better chance to do that, which just means, you know, things that pay people to do stuff more. I'm not, you know, efficiency in homes and stuff is one of these. I wouldn't expect a big energy boost or an economic boost from that. Mm -hmm. like it, it could help people's lifestyles, right? You're directly trying to impact homes, which is to say different than just building industry stuff and like power plants and mm -hmm. pipelines, right? It's, so it's a little bit more directly affecting a person and households. And the, uh, I don't, so I wouldn't expect a big energy or economic benefit from that, but maybe a, a human, human level benefit. Um, and then maybe the wages from that. So um, I guess if I, you know, if I were there, I'd be, you know, I don't know, if, who knows if I come up with a better term than build back better, I'm guessing I could, but let's just say that's what I called it. I'd probably, yeah, I would try to de-emphasize growing the economy and emphasize um, lifestyles of the, you know, the lower 50% or so incomes. And say, if you don't, that's what the programs are focused on, focused on uh, conserving energy and improving lower income lifestyles. And if you don't like that, then, you know, you vote for somebody else next time. Mm. Uh, that may be the first thing. Second thing, maybe, uh, I think I would just buy, the federal government, I would just say like, look, we're going to buy some stuff. We're going to procure some projects just to do it. The projects that the private sector is not doing. And maybe some of these are, you know, carbon sequestration type things. Mm -hmm. Not that I think everybody's behind it, but I think the private sector is not going to do it until they're basically paid to do it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. nobody's going to agree on whether we should do it or not until we just do some of it and uh, figure out if people are annoyed with it or not. So um, it's well, the a power. Lot of the power of the purse is a huge power for the federal government. Like, for example, yeah. when, um, you know, when uh, I believe it was uh, under Obama, they decided that, you know, if they were going to have a government facility, they were only going to rent uh, in facilities that were green buildings. Well, that then drove the entire market to focus on building green buildings regardless, you know, so that one decision, you know, changed priorities in terms of the standard that they use to make those buildings. Um, so by, you know, just throwing that kind of a statement in and then acting on it, you know, it has a huge impact in terms of how it affects behavior by everybody else uh, in that industry, so. Right, another potential thing, I don't know if I, I like to think about it now, who knows if I'd actually 
write my name to it if I could. Um, yeah, maybe you just buy some nuclear facilities. I don't know if you wait for some of these newer technologies to see if they're going to happen or speed up the demonstrations. But, you know, at some level, you just got to decide. You know, <laughs> you know, I think the private sector has got, got it covered on wind, solar, batteries, you know, gas. Um, it's not having it covered on carbon storage and, and nuclear. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, spread out, you know, five more nuclear plants across the country to kind of diversify and say we're going to build these suckers. It's easier said than done. Still may take 20 years, I guess. I don't know if they have to hire, train enough new engineers and things, and mm -hmm. people to, to, to build it. So yeah. well, the it's challenge, not going to happen in four years. The challenge with nuclear, though, I would think, and your take on this, uh, I would be curious on is, um, you know, it has to be built next to water for cooling. And if you have sea level rise, doesn't that expose nuclear plants to sea level rise risk? All right, certainly, yeah. So yeah, don't put, well, I guess I would, that's another, I, we've, we've already on three or four things about if I were in charge of Build Back Better. But yeah, one of them would be, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I said some other ones, but maybe that's a good one right there. It's like just, I think Biden's actually, I think they're actually doing this a little bit, right? Changing the insurance rules for coastal yeah. uh, infrastructure. So so yes, don't put a nuclear plant. Yeah, it, you know, has to be above sea level, current sea level by some number that seems to make sense. Um, uh, but certainly, yeah, the water is an issue. So that's, it's basically tougher to find, well, it's basically tougher to find water for an industrial facility inland, uh, almost anywhere now, uh, more surface water. So you may have to, you know, buy out surface water rights from, from somebody else. I don't know. Um, certainly a concern. I assume we could get that done in the grand scheme of challenges of nuclear. I don't know if that's the biggest one, but mm -hmm. certainly, yeah, yeah. As you said, yeah, don't, don't build stuff low-lying areas um that's a yeah that's a contentious one how much you would rebuild low-lying areas if, yeah or protect them that's a that's a tough one mm -hmm. i would i would maybe try to find some way to encourage people to slowly slowly move and migrate if they can uh you know over over you know a generation or something you know mm -hmm. uh, you know like just kind of you know don't don't kick them out tomorrow uh but you know maybe the next generation yeah somewhere else well, definitely, uh, I think we see that revaluation of real estate uh, has already started from from what I've seen in, or what I've heard in Florida. So, um, you know, I think we're there. So, yeah, I would, ex I would expect it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just kind of, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just you have to deal with it, I think. Yeah. Mm. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat today. Um, you know, as always, it's uh, it's a great conversation, very informative, and uh, you know, always great to have a uh, different perspective uh, than uh, kind of what everybody else is talking about, and one that's informed by at least uh, thoughtful models. So, I appreciate you taking the time. All right, thank you, Jim. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay.